Um, we've been doing a vision series over the last couple of weeks, uh, I guess last week and then this week, and I'm pausing it because I'm troubled. And I don't do this very often. I have been criticized for being too political and not political enough many, many times, which uh, leads me to believe maybe I'm getting it right humanly. Um, and I redid my outline, probably rewrote my sermon as many times as I have in at least four years. Um, and Liam, it's not showing you my notes, so you have the con, sir. Okay? You good? It's totally fine. Um, Jesus won't be used when he was on earth doing his earthly ministry multiple times uh, People expected him to take power and even tried to force him to take power, and he refused. Jesus will not accept political power until he returns when heaven and earth collide. The first commandment given in um, Exodus 20, repeated in Deuteronomy and affirmed directly and indirectly by Jesus, is we worship God and we worship him alone. We've already sang about this this morning um, Meg reflected upon it in her prayers. The second commandment is we will not make or bow to an idol. Idols are literal and metaphorical things that lead us away from the worship of the one true God. Literal in the sense of worshiping another God. Metaphorical when we ask things to deliver to us in a way that only God can. The third commandment is, I will not take up the name of the Lord with dishonor. I will take up the name of the Lord with honor. I know that's not how you learned it, but the Hebrew verb is nasa, which um, I used nasa as my way of remembering that when I was learning Hebrew in the 90s. Take up with your voice and with your actions and with your mind, you will represent to yourself and to the world the image of God. And when you don't, you'll repent, because none of us can do that perfectly. Those are commandments one, two, and three, written with the finger of God in, on um, Mount Sinai, affirmed by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, repeated and reflected over and over, including uh, by the Holy Spirit to the prophet Micah, then the words of Jesus. And on Wednesday, we saw people violate this in the name of Jesus. It's not new, but I was really bothered. And I am not a sociologist. I'm not a journalist. Um, my civics is mediocre at best. I'm not talking about democracy. I'm not talking about the election. I'm not talking about the thousands of people that were there peacefully protesting. I'm talking about flags with Jesus' name on them next to symbols of hatred and violence. To name Jesus and then proclaim, either through words or deeds, things that are anti-Jesus is heretical. I do not use that word lightly. 
heresy is something that looks like Jesus but is in fact leading people to a belief system and a way of life that is anti-Christ. In 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27, we are warned that people will proclaim Jesus and actually be leading away from him in belief and in action. In the same way that you can understand biblically that there's a John the Baptist and John the Apostle, you can understand that Antichrist, as it relates to end times, is one thing, and Antichrist as a teaching that is opposed to the teaching of Jesus is something that has existed ever since Jesus rose into heaven. It is heretical to grab power and to harm in the name of Jesus. It is a teaching and a lifestyle that is anti-Christ. In John chapter 6, after feeding the multitude and after hearing Jesus' incredible teaching that was so profound and people immediately heard the authority in his voice, good authority, because authority is a blessing, except when it's not. Christian authority is for our good. It is often wrong because it's exerted by fallible human beings, but it's good. Anyway, after feeding the multitude, they tried to get Jesus to be king. They wanted to establish him. This is on John chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. They wanted to establish him as an alternate to Herod under the Roman system because they were so encouraged by his teaching and they knew that he loved the nation of Israel, which he did. Jesus's, I think, most profound lament other than Gethsemane was that more of Israel did not respond well to his teaching. He loved his fellow Israelites. And he resisted political power. Jesus will not be used. He would not be when he was on earth, and he will not be until he returns in power to make all things right. Jesus leads us away from idolatry. He will not be used, and he leads us away from idolatry. Idolatry that can become, most, much of idolatry can become heresy. Idols don't deliver. You know that, right? Some days we think, maybe I'll feel a little better if I buy something. And we do. And we feel a little better for, what, four minutes? Let's say four minutes to four months. Let's say like the best purchase ever. Like makes you happy for up to four months. Right? But then it stops delivering. It can't speak to our soul. Right? Hopefully that's such a simple example. You know what I'm talking about. But then there are worse idols, and we have to watch out for them. I'm going to use an example of another kind of heresy, other than the nationalism that I'm attempting to be very, 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 very clear about right now. Uh, the prosperity gospel is a heresy. It is something that looks like and sounds like Jesus from a distance, but when you get up close, is actually an anti-Christ. The prosperity gospel promises that if you believe 
like a Christian and act like a Christian, you'll receive in this life health and wealth and sometimes other things. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. One of thousands of verses that teach us that the prosperity gospel is in fact heresy and taught by anti-Christs and is harmful. If you had asked me four years ago, what do I believe is the greatest threat to the witness of the true church of Jesus Christ, I would have told you the prosperity gospel, both here and around the world. Now I would say it's nationalism. And if I'm wrong, and you're just going to listen to a sermon this morning about heresy and the importance of um, submitting ourselves to the actual Bible and the content of especially the Gospels and perhaps James and Romans as it teaches us how to be a Christian in the world with its imperfect and very corrupt political systems, fine. I'm not wrong that it's a heresy. Maybe I'm wrong that it's the worst. I was debating this week with a pastor who's more conservative than me because when I'm troubled about things that are not explicit in Scripture, I check with all sorts of people. I check with our elders. I check with theologians. I check with other pastors. I check with secular people. That's not a knock. I just mean people that don't go to church and don't believe in Jesus. I was talking with my neighbor this week, and we were talking about the news. And he said, I saw those flags. What did Jesus have to do with this? And I said, nothing. There's a number of other heresies. The, the um, church, before it was so divided denominationally, when it was opposed by Rome, and then shortly thereafter used to have these big councils because they would work out their theology. Many of the councils were devoted to the many faceted heresies that Jesus was a created being. That's a heresy. It doesn't worry me as much because it doesn't seem to be attracting people. So I'm mixing the practical and the theological to say that I think nationalism is the greatest threat to the witness of the true church. It's heresy when it invokes Jesus' name. And I think there's a little bit of it in us. I don't think anyone from this church went to D.C. and carried a flag that said Jesus' name on it next to a flag or on the same flag on the other side, symbols of hate and violence. I don't. But I think there's a little bit of this in us. The text I was planning to preach on on Tuesday... My notes just look like they're in another language to me now. Paul likens himself in 1 Thessalonians 2 to a caring father and to a caring mother. And he says twice, he shared, he was pleased to share not only the gospel of God, but his very life. That's my role as your pastor, is to share not only the gospel with you, but also my very life. My role also overlaps into what, uh, spiritual parenting. And I know that's weird, because you're older than me. It's still my role, biblically. And I see a little bit of this in us. And you know why? <laughs> it's not because we sat down at our computer and was like, you know what I want? I want a little bit of nationalism in me. This will be fun. Let's research it and then believe it. It's because it's everywhere. It's in the water. 
the way that most politicians utilize, the, the politicians who utilize the Bible, most of the time that they utilize it has at least some of this in it. And I'm glad, I'm glad they're at least reading it. But I'm not glad how they use it. It seeps in. It's in the water. One of the ways it's in the water is the almost puritanically judgmental tone that the left takes to judge the right. Yeah, I said it. What happened on Wednesday was not a two sides thing, but it's certainly fueled in part by the left's puritanically judgmental words and tone. There's some of this in us, friends. And when we learn that, we repent. When we learn that there's a little bit in us, we repent. That's what Christians do. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give us kind of a spectrum, because some of you are so excited that I'm talking about this, and that can be a problem too. Some of you are really annoyed with me right now, and let me, I'm going to tell you how to be annoyed with me. Okay? Quote me back to me accurately. Tell me why it bothered you, and I'll listen. Tell me your perspective, and I'll listen. It's very hard to listen to one another. Yet we can do it. We're called to do it and commanded to do it. We can do it. So quote me accurately. Tell me why it bothered you. By the way, probably wait a little bit. Because when we're bothered, the Lord has something there for us. Maybe a correction for me, but probably also something in us. So if you're bothered right now, take a few days. Then quote me accurately. Tell me why it bothered you. Tell me your perspective. I will not talk until you're done. I promise. Unless you misquote me. That really bugs me. Because when you misquote me, what happens is, I don't learn. Because I didn't say that. So if I say something, and you hear something else, that's incredible learning for me. Incredible. I love it. I'm here for it. I want to be a clear communicator. But if you don't realize you're misquoting me, you're going to miss out on some learning too. I'll write you a description of this later if you need. How to disagree with your pastor. I'm serious. So what's the, the, what is in us? Um, I'm in a book club with some other pastors. They came and did a retreat here. This is at uh, the waterfall on West Ledge. That's me on the side. Perhaps you don't recognize me with my incredible hair in that picture. The next person in the picture is Joe Kim. He's probably the best theological pastor that I know. He understands how the Bible works theologically as well as anyone I know. The third one's Brian Fitzgerald. He's preached here a couple of times. He and I went to Riverside together. Now he's in upstate New York. The fourth one is Andrew Smith. He's an Irishman who likes scotch. The next is Bonnie Gatchell. Uh, uh, she's a pastor in our presbytery, uh, runs Route 1 Ministries. And the last one is Steve McLean. Though he's over 70, he loved the hike up West Ledge to the waterfall. They came here on a retreat a few years ago. We asked Joe for help defining nationalism, and this is what he said. To answer your question, I would say that regular nationalism is when we place the nation and its interests at the top of a hierarchy in a way that justifies us acting like an apex predator. Any and all national sins or the sins of the leader are justified if they are done to maintain our placement atop the proverbial hierarchy. 
But Christian nationalism takes this a whole step further. Our placement at the top of the hierarchy is ordained by the Christian God. To venerate the nation and its symbols is conflated with obedience to God. To put it differently, to be Christian is to be American and vice versa. What is the second commandment given by Moses? It's the right to bear arms. This creates a drive inside Christian nationalists to align Christianity with the foundational principles of the nation, but it also drives them to align the nation with their understanding of Christianity, which ends up warping both. My friends, I think there's a little bit of this in me. And I think there's a little bit in you. And what we get to do as Christians is say to Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me, help. Beth Moore, perhaps the most influential and powerful in truth power, evangelical, and by in truth I mean influence on other people, talks adjacent to the issues this way. When the gospel has become bad news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted and the imprisoned, and good news to the proud, self-righteous and privileged, it is no longer the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. That's an indirect way of explaining how nationalism is heretical. That's an indirect way of explaining how it is no longer, no, it's not, not indirect in stating that it's no longer the gospel when it becomes that. What is Jesus leading us into, friends? Because the gospel is always from and into. From slavery into freedom. From death into life. From leading ourselves into destruction into leading our, uh, him leading us into free life. The first part of the gospel that is beautiful, good, and true is its freedom from our old life and trying to save ourselves. Are you, are you a fan of the Shawshank Redemption? IMDb says it's the most popular movie ever. <laughs> I don't know how much we should trust IMDb with that, but I, I kind of like them. And you remember the deep breath after he crawls through the sewage to freedom. And he's standing under the rain. That's the first part of the gospel. Frees us from deep breath. But it's also into. Into acts of justice. Remember the unjust people at the prison were punished. Remember that he got to go to a beach and find his work to do as a man. He's freed into friendship that didn't have any bars on it. Where they could stay up as long as they wanted playing chess on the beach. Uh, that movie wasn't supposed to have that ending. And as they tested it, people said it doesn't work without, without seeing the friends united. Because there's an instinctive understanding in us as humans of what freedom really is. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom into. The Apostle Paul um, had to defend himself very regularly because when he would talk about the gospel of Jesus, his countrymen would say, you must not love Israel. It happened a lot. Read Romans 9 and tell me if I'm wrong. Listen to this in Philippians 3. And this is the church, I think other than the Thessalonian church, that Paul was fondest of. Yet he was being criticized by his countrymen who said, because of the way he proclaimed the gospel, you just don't love Israel. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to this. So, hang with me. When Paul would proclaim the gospel of Jesus, his countrymen would say, you don't love Israel. Leading him to write this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We do the same thing his opponents did. When people who disagree with us politically or religiously, when, when people disagree with us and we respond that they're a wishy-washy Christian or an inconsistent Christian or not a Christian. That's not Christian to do that. If someone says, I feel like I'm a wishy-washy Christian, then we should ask them some questions and be a good friend, but we don't call anyone that. When we do so, we're acting like the opponents of Paul, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write a letter to the church. That's still useful to us in learning about our own blind spots and sinful tendencies and opportunities that we have to repent. Paul's critics led him to gush about his love for Israel and cuss. Rubbish is Greek cussing. He's so mad and so wants to be understood that he gives his resume, his full Israelite, no-holds-barred, truthful resume, and says, I count that as scubalon, street dung trash. And I see this in us, friends, the same thing that Paul's refuting. And I hope that you see the opportunity, if you see this in yourself as well as I see it in myself, the opportunity is to shed and repent of nationalism and receive something far better, which is patriotism. And nationalism, among the ugly things about it, is how conditional it is, right? Is conditional... Love, love, is conditional affection, affection. Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump capitalized on the image of the past and a potential image of the future to win elections because they know that's in us. The tendency to love what something could be or once was 
instead of what it actually is. Parents and children don't love one another this way, or they do and it harms them. Spouses seek to not love one another this way. Friends, the gospel is from and into. And I know many of you think I don't love America, and you're wrong. I know many of you think I'm a liberal, and I'm going to say this very plainly. I'm not. On my desk, I meant to bring it, is a Bavarian wine pipe. You all, knew, you all saw that illustration coming, right? This is when Matt inserts his Bavarian wine pipe illustration to talk about the problems of nationalism. I feel known right now. The reason I have a Bavarian wine pipe on my desk is because my grandfather, my dad's dad, flew bombers in World War II and traded American cigarettes for them. Bavarian wine pipe has a pretty long stem. It has a connector piece that you take off and drop a couple of drops of red wine in, and then you smoke the pipe. I can't smoke it because it doesn't fit together well. Dad, if you're listening, Uncle Steve has still not sent me the other pipes. Just FYI. My other grandfather, my mom's dad, took photos at at the Nuremberg trials, the war crimes trials. General Rommel's uh, photographer became my grandfather's darkroom assistant. I turned his vacation day photos into a book that I keep in my living room and look at sometimes. And in the book is a photo of a German man with this Bavarian man, this long flowing white beard, smoking a Bavarian wine pipe, which reminds me of my mom's dad's service and my dad's dad's service and how thankful I am for it. But my thankfulness as a Christian cannot turn into blind loyalty no matter what. To do so would actually not be to be a good Christian in the country that I live in. You see this at the beginning of every convention. Democrat and Republican prayers before the conventions criticize their party through the prayer and asking the Lord to help the party become better. Saw it yesterday in South Carolina. There was a a pro-life democratic march. They took out an ad in the New York Times a number of months ago because Christians within the systems around them long for them to do better. Jesus will not be used. He refused political power then. He refuses it now until he returns. He leads us away from idolatry and heresy into freedom and the power of his resurrection. We bow to Christ and to him alone. And as far as I can tell, no one else is asking us in America to bow to anything else in Christ. I think this is the greatest threat to our witness, friends. And, uh, three years ago, I played golf with a friend that I play basketball with. And about the 10th hole, he started bringing up conservatism politically. Because despite him being in his 40s and in great shape, wildly successful, beautiful children, he's still troubled by the way that he grew up. And he kept bringing it up without asking me a question. So I'd listen, and I would try to say things like, ah, it must have been disorienting. What do you think about it now? All the questions I need help on if you saw my Facebook post. I was talking with a friend this year, not a follower of Jesus, 
and her child is, uh, I think, typical of Simsbury, if, if Simsbury forms politically kind of moderate left, right? I think that's Simsbury. And he was getting, he, he, that, that's where he's coming from. And he has relatives who are uh, police officers and veterans who are giving him another perspective. And that is good and helpful. But then he got on the internet. He went down a rabbit hole. And here's what troubles me about it. Parents did a great job. They, were, <laughs> they locked up all his stuff and started speaking with him very carefully and asking him questions. And he talked, and it, it, I think it went really well parentally. Okay? Here's the thing that troubles me about that. I know that this family does not go to church. I don't think either parent is religious at all. When he got on the internet is the only time I think he's heard the name of Jesus. In, from voices that would lead him away from the true Jesus. I don't know where you are in the spectrum of the things that I'm talking about. Liam, go ahead and just go to the last slide. I can't figure out how to do it. I don't know where you are on the spectrum. Some of you are judgmental towards those of us who have a little bit of this in us. That's an opportunity for you to repent too. Because what do Christians do when in the presence of people carrying signs of Jesus and hate at the same time? We try to love them and forgive them and converse with them. So if your only emotion or thought about this is judgment, then you sound like the worst versions of the left to the right, and that's not Christian. If you see in this some tendencies in yourself, if you were to lose affection for the United States and that changed your faith in Jesus, you've got some thinking and some prayer and some conversation to do. If you were to lose your affection for Jesus... Your salvation cannot be lost. But if you were to lose your affection for Jesus, and that were to change your perspective on the country, this, this country, or whatever country you're from, you have some work to do, some prayer, some conversation, some thinking, some studying the scriptures, particularly the Gospels and James and Romans. If you're sure that I'm wrong about this as a heresy, I hope that you talk with some friends. And I hope that you talk with friends that view the world a little bit differently than you. Because if we only talk to the friends that view the world pretty much the same as us, we're not going to grow and we're not going to learn. That's why I ran, oh, I don't know, version 3 of this sermon. First version 1, then version 3 by 10 people. And those of them that are listening are like, this is not what you ran by us. Yeah, because I work on it a lot because I want to be clear And more importantly than clarity is saying that Jesus is Lord and Jesus alone. We all have an opportunity to do the most profound but seemingly mundane thing available to Christians. To say to Jesus, I'm sorry. And if you feel indifferent, you're like, I don't like that they did that, but I don't really care. That's something to repent of also. Because of the scripture that Meg read. Because of the passion in Philippians 3. Because you have a role. You have a role. You have a role. You have a role. In your neighborhoods, in your family, in your place of business. All the things I try and say all the time. You have a role. It's a role of shalom and justice. 
and the good news that because of the work of Christ, we're freed into the Father, into relationship with the Father. So if you're indifferent about this, or you feel judgmental towards those, or you're mad because you think I'm wrong, you have an opportunity to repent of something to Jesus. And I do too. It's good news. I count everything as loss. All that other stuff. This is Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I so long to be clear, and yet know that your Holy Spirit is unthwartable in its pursuit of our good, first in saving us, and then in sanctifying and growing us up and maturing us in love. Father, I praise you that you are a kind Father. I praise you that it is incredibly humbling to me to have a father and mother-like role in this church, according to 1 Thessalonians 2. Jesus, we all praise you that your righteousness is ours because of you and not us. Holy Spirit, would you grow us up? Would you teach us about love and mercy and justice and peace as you define them? Amen.